Hello, you're listening to The Consequential Podcast. I'm Dave, this is Roger. Hello. Lucy's not here, she can't be bothered. I think that's a bit harsh. She basically said that. And that she was, like, super fucking busy. She can't be bothered to be here. Um, we're sort of going to go straight into the topic today, since all everything we've done has been homework. I think that's a bit harsh as well. You're being very harsh today, Mr. Convery. Is everything okay at home? I've had a long day and I'm cranky. Have a little wine. Today's podcast... No, it's just a supermarket Valpolicella. It's quite nice. It is quite nice. It's not really taking the edge off. Um, so, we're, we're going to talk about gods. Gods in comics. Pretty much, yeah. It's, um, it's partly spurred on by uh, having a bit of a Wikdiv catch-up. And we'll talk about Wikdiv probably in quite a bit of detail because it's one of the uh, two, there are probably more than two, but one of the two that I know of current god-based ongoing comics. I decided to have a bit of a catch-up on Wikdiv, and in fact we, we all did. So I picked up a bunch of, of back, uh, well, are they back issues when they're so recent? A bunch of issues of Wikdiv, having, uh, having stopped reading the singles for a bit, but getting curious. Curious, I think, off the back of Siberia's Godshaper. Who's drawing that? Jonas Goonface. Delicious. New to comics, very good at formal layouts. Uh, we'll we'll talk about we'll talk about Godshaper as well. But I think sort of I think seeing a few bits of press coverage or maybe Twitter coverage of that sort of set me off. Gods in comics, let's do that. There's a lot of them. Sometimes they're protagonists, Wikdiv, Thor, plenty of other things. Sometimes they're in the background. Sometimes they're de facto super teams. It just sort of seemed like a thing to talk about, really. Yeah. And also, I mean, just come out on Nobrow is Hamish Steele's Pantheon, which oh, is... Oh, it's so good. ...is tremendous and is a very uh, irreverent retelling of the, the tale of Set and Horus, the sort of foundation myth of... sort of core myth of, of the uh, Egyptian Pantheon. You say irreverent, but a lot of it's kind of in the original mythology. Oh, sure, it's there, Including but all the spunk. Yes, it's a very spunk-heavy mythology. Yeah. Fun, fun spunk fact. Uh, it's some archaeologists believe that there is a passageway leading from the pharaoh's burial chamber in the pyramids towards the night sky, um, because all iron in in uh, the Egyptian High Kingdom was meteoric iron, which they believed to be pharaoh spunk. So. There's a passage in the pyramids, so he can spaff out some iron for them, and they can continue their dominance over the lower kingdoms. With spunk iron? Spunk iron, yes. Didn't work out... No, no, it worked out pretty well for them for About quite a 6, while, years, actually. years, yeah. Uh, longer than we've managed. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess, cheers for civilizational longevity. Cheers for victory. But it's, you know, it's not all semen in the world of, uh, of gods in comics. It is largely. There's a lot. There's, there's, a, there's a lot. Some of the things I skipped through were Lucifer, Sandman, obviously there's a lot of stuff in Sandman, Wikdiv, a whole bunch of Thor, Amy Steele's Pantheon. Um, I've also been reading Injection. That's coming out sort of uh, ongoing. We could probably wrangle that in. Previously read Black Monday Murders. I think you want to talk about that a little bit. Yes. Yes, briefly. Mm. And I don't know. I I'm going to start with Wicked and the Divine. 
And if you happen to have been, a, I don't know, living under a comics rock or something, The Wicked and the Divine is Kieran Gillen, Jamie McKelvey, and Matt Wilson's book about... I was going to say The Gods as Pop Stars because that's the classic jacket blurby thing, except it's kind of about a whole bunch of other things. Basic, scant retelling of premise for the unfamiliar. Every 90-odd years, a pantheon of gods is reincarnated or reappears. They will live for two years, and then they will die, and that time they will inspire mankind. By now, we're well into... um, quite deep into the arc of it, and I'm not going to duck any spoilers at this point. I think we're just going to talk about it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, a bunch of the gods are dead. Their custodian and anchor, the sort of entity representing necessity, has killed a bunch of them in super shady circumstances. There's conspiracy, there's all sorts of things. And of the 12 supposed gods, we also have a 13th, a Persephone figure. It's It done got complicated since we last talked about it. We did a, a sort of fairly in-depth special on it. Yeah, it has... Um it goes through periods of expansion and contraction, I think it would be fair to say. Yes. Um, right now, it's or certainly to the point where we've both read it, it's feeling like it's expanding again. It's it's cleaned up a bunch of dangling threads, and now there's a whole bunch of new stuff appearing. And some of those expansive moments are sort of very visual, heavily use of big action sequences, double-page spreads, or massive emotional outpourings. Some of the contractions can be more stylistic, so... One of the issues, is it 23, is pure prose? Yes. Yeah, it's a series of interviews done by real-world journalists. And I haven't read up on the creation, but presumably they were all Mm. just talking to Gillen. I would imagine. I'd need to check that. One of the earlier uh, issues, I think it's 14, is um, reconstituted and reinterpreted panels from previous issues as well. Yeah. There's there's some really lovely... uh, the well, remix issue. Yeah. In, well, in, in, in some passing remarks about Black Monday Murders, I think Kieran Gillen talked about uh, Hickman seeing the cage or possibly seeing where... It was something like seeing the cage or seeing where the lines are. Uh, he's clearly, as a writer, Kieran Gillen, it, it has a similar thing going on. He's clearly very interested in wearing the craft on his sleeves some of the time, and this series does that quite heavily some of the time. Uh there's a lot of formal experimentation. But I think one of the one of the things that makes it interesting as a book to talk about gods is how it doesn't do some of the other things that comics that use gods do. Yeah, so one of the things that I've been thinking about, particularly in the coming off the back of reading Pantheon and coming off the back of reading some other books featuring mythology that didn't do this, I felt. Um, I'll clarify. One of the books that I read last year was was Hound, mm. which is a telling um, of the Kukulan uh, myth, uh, or Kahalan, or yeah. one of many pronunciations. And in that, the gods have clearly defined... Um, they have story arcs. And it doesn't quite work for me. They're not the sort of fickle and arbitrary creatures that actually you need to get mythological structure to work. One thing Pantheon does very well is the characters who are in it clearly just go, we're fickle, this is arbitrary, 
sometimes the symbolism is the important thing. We are living by story logic. Yeah. It's that kind of, I describe it as the and then this happens storytelling logic of talking to children. Yeah. But a lot of mythology has that. Yeah. Oh. And when you try and, and, and impose clear cause and effect on it, um, it doesn't necessarily hang together, or at least I felt it didn't in that. In Wickdiv, on the other hand, there is clear cause and effect because these these gods are reincarnated into the bodies of teenagers who are still fucking teenagers. They're just very powerful yeah. ones now. And they behave like teenagers trying to be adults as people who are, like, 17, 18 mm. do anyway. It's just that these adults have fucking superpowers. Leading to, you know, Ananke yelling, eternity is hell here with you children. Uh, sorry, hell is eternity with you children. And all sorts of wonderful motifs. There's a gorgeous panel where um, Amaterasu bails on a fight to go and find um, Cassandra. Why do you need my help? Do you need my superpowers? No, because you're the grown-up. <laughs> And yes, it's a bit nod to camera, but it's kind of delightful. And whilst being more overtly about exploring what it means to be a god, whilst throwing around more deific mythology, whilst doing a lot of that stuff more than a lot of books do, I'm just going to sort of cut to the chase of, of one of the things that I think is going on with gods in comics and then kind of loop background to explore why, which is I think there's a few broad strokes, there are many other broad strokes way of tackling the ideas. Um, one of them is to, to various degrees, embrace the mad narrative logic of mythos and play with it. Um, Pantheon, a few other things, actually bits of Thor when you get down to it. One of them is to embrace the god-superman thing and just do superheroes or do a super team broad strokes, most gods in most of Marvel. Um, and one of the others is to just kind of do something else and use the god status as a different type of analogy or to play with something else, which I think is kind of where Wigdiv is sitting. Yes. Yes, it is. And it means that it's... Um, its story logic is consistent and it works for me in a way that these things... that, that doesn't often work for me when you give gods human characteristics. Yeah, and when often when they have human when they have human characteristics they're often in the same way as say the X-Men or the Avengers or I mean, Marvel's quite bad for this. You've got Thor, you've got Loki, you've got various deific entities that um, are sometimes referred to as gods are sometimes not and there's this thing of well let's use them for a super team and because you're in a universe where there are also there's the Eternals, there's the Externals, there's goodness knows what else there's Galactus. At some point in the Marvel hierarchy, there's some kind of unifying creator entity-ish a bit. And it's kind of... You've got this kind of layered entity inflation where you start with superheroes and then you put another tier outside those because you need something bigger. And you put another tier outside those because you need something bigger. At some point you get, in Marvel Land, you get uh, the gods of Asgard and then you have stuff outside that and then I, I read God Bomb and God Butcher where you've got things that aren't gods that can fight gods. And you, Okay, cool. You're using this stuff, you're using it in some interesting ways, and Jason Aaron's stuff actually does use some of the God status stuff in quite interesting ways, but sometimes, basically, it's just nailing the name to a superhero. Yeah, often it is. Um, and if you listen to Grant Morrison, he quite happily writes Superman as a sort of socialist Apollo. Like he's very, very happy to do that, and he views 
pretty much all of the DC characters as gods of some sort. Um, so Superman and Batman being sort of ego and id, um, dark reflections of one another or reflections of one another. The Watchman thing about God is American. Yeah, well, Watch- Watchman sort of takes a lot of it to its logical con- conclusion, which is that if you give superheroes godlike powers, then they would or should or could behave in arbitrary godlike ways. And, I mean, Wicked is actually doing that, so freed from Anakoba Pantheon is kind of going a bit feral at the moment, for example, and sort of heading towards having their own cults a bit more or behaving a bit but it, more. But it doesn't have that sort of godly indifference that you have with something like Dr. Manhattan. No, no. And it's not currently exploring that massively. Although, you know, perhaps it may move to that. Wicked feels more grounded and more human than a lot of things, except maybe some bits of the Thor that I read, which are negotiating around different types of being Thor. I don't find the superhero stuff massively um, massively interesting in terms of how it approaches gods for the most part. Mm. So I mentioned Grant Morrison because I do quite like some of his writing. And I think All-Star Superman is a very good mm. mythological take on... Uh, on that sort of godly aspect of it. I mean, it ends up with the character. This is a spoiler for a 12, 15-year-old book at this point, but, you know, in order to in order to save the Earth, casting himself into the sun, becoming one with the sun, um, with the distinct possibility of rebirth, which is Ra symbolism, right? It's But not just, right? It's, no, it, no, it's no, creation it's myth and origins of evil in the world. And look, we're not going to be the first people to suggest that maybe, just maybe, comics with their wacky continuity and their supermen and their occasionally glib morality tales might be scratching the same itch as, ooh, I don't know, your kind of adventurist pantheism. No. And I mean, the Flash is, is Hermes, right? Mm. That's always been there. Um, the and, a lot, and a lot of the older, older characters in particular have that because they weren't drawing from a, a sci-fi tradition in the same sense that some of the sort of characters from the forties, um, fifties, and sixties were. The characters from the sort of the thirties and before were. Yes, there was the nascent sci-fi tradition, but it was small and it was pulpy, and a lot of it didn't last. A lot of them drew on much earlier characters and. And then you get you get your dualities as well, right? So there are supervillains as pure extrinsic evil, a kind of cryptic-y, gnostic-y attempt to explain bad things in the world, if I'm really going to hammer this angle, which for a moment I am. Oh, there was a JMS Spider-Man thing which went on far too long in which uh, the reason that all of the animal-themed villains could never beat Spider-Man was that he was pure totemic spider and they were all Mm. scientifically created... Or animals. It was <laughs> not oh, that's horrible. Oh, you, you get to your like good evil duality thing of superhero created by one set of mad science circumstances, supervillain created by related ones. I mean, uh, ultimate. Is it just ultimate, or is it the entirety of Fantastic Four? No, it's only it's Ultimate Fantastic Four where Doom is created in the same accident as. Yeah, as the Fantastic Four. Yeah, but there are there are plenty of, of sort of commensurate examples there of shared or sh- semi-shared or heavily related creations. And I think t- 
typically, certainly in the sort of 60s and previous stuff, the the scientifically created characters, um, the heroes were created in an accident or doing something selfless. Yep. The villains as a as an act of their own hubris. And so you've got your Prometheus shit, but you've also got your kind mm. of perversion of the same holy force, wasted of poten- waste of potential. So that. There's a lot of fairly hackneyed arguments about superheroes often representing something a bit like a pantheistic mythos. That's, and I find it, I find gods in comics, I think, most interesting when they're not necessarily having a postmodern wink at that because that's quite played out. Yeah, um, no, I, I agree pretty much wholeheartedly. The only exception I would say again is is probably Grant Morrison because he writes those characters uncynically um, and he's got his own demented drug-addled spirituality going on which again he approaches broadly uncynically and I think it works a lot better because he's not winking to camera for him that is the sort of essential essence Mm. and he's smart enough to write it that way um, and I find that it just it just works a lot better than the slightly glib uh, approach that you have to a lot of this from some other writers. I think there's a kind of interesting um, semi-folkloric middle ground. And here I'm talking about... So I read uh, the Jason Aaron and Ezad Ribic. I think it's Isad Ribic run on Thor, the first couple of trades of that, God Butcher and God Bomb. I also read the first run of Lucifer, the first post-Sandman run of Lucifer from, what is that, like 2001? Uh, Devil in the Gateway, Mike Carey, um, Scott Hampton, Chris West, and James Hodkins. There's quite a lot of art going on in that book, some of it much, much better than others. Um, and I reread a bunch of Sandman, and the Sandman Lucifer connection, fair enough. But there's there's a thing going on there, and you, you see this a bit, I think, also a bit in, in Journeys into Mystery, of. It's a bit like the way Joanne Harris does Thor in Gospel of Loki, but using the license of, of being mythic to tell something a bit more fairy tale y, to tell something a bit more fantastical in its tone. So the well, the Aaron Thor has a lot of captions rather than speech bubbles. It mm-hmm. has a lot of... And then the Mighty Thor did this, but slightly tongue-in-cheek, but without being too glib. Yeah, well, you have the three ages of the character in that, and you have you have um, the Mighty Thor, which is sort of his him with the Vikings, drinking heavily and, and beating up orcs. You've got the Avengers-era Thor, and then you've Thor got Avenger, a sort of far future. Father. Um, yeah. And the mythologized take is self mythologi- uh, self mythologizing. Um, he sort of talks about his own great deeds as though he hasn't, even though it's from a later point and he's shifted from that mindset into a more mature um, person or God, essentially, given that there's a sort of death and rebirth to get to each mm. of them, you could, theologically speaking, treat them as separate characters. Um, and I think that book the does book, that. The book plays delightfully with that interrelation. I, that, that is absolutely true. I, I more kind of meant the not quite authorial voice, but the yeah, maybe something something in the style of the book. So it, the, the way Sandman plays entirely with myth, but particularly with the god stories, 
is to give them that character of someone telling a story about your god, someone telling you a myth. It's very overtly narrative-y. It's, it's Sandman that actually has Thor doing the lisping woman joke, isn't it? Yeah. And Loki relating with glee about the shoving a cork up his ass and Yes. That there's So the in the, the appearance of the Norse Pantheon in Sandman, they're kind of a bit of a joke and they're sort of but but within within the idiom established for them. But the the story they exist within and this is sort of also a bit true of the Lucifer stuff, has that game and synthetic mythology thing of the weird narrative logic, but also the slightly meditative, this is an analogy for something, but that feeling of being a story being told to you, it's very mm. overtly a story. Well, um, the, Norse, the Norse, uh, Norse mythology, as it was passed down, or the, the form in which we know it, is that as well. It's a slightly yeah, ribald... Yeah, well, the various Eddas. Yeah, well, the, the Eddas, um, uh, the Elder Edda was written by Snorri Sturluson, who was mm. Christian, and while he was, you know, while he knew those stories and was preserving them, they are slightly taking the piss out of them as well mm. because they're the old gods; they're not real. Um, and also, it's if you're going to write them down, it's a good look to, you know, take the piss out of them when you are um, in that sort of burn everything era of Christianity. Mm. Um, but and then very, the the sort of Gospel of Loki does the same thing again, but through a different comedic lens. You have Loki taking the piss out of. Like taking that as read, taking it as read that these characters are boorish and are stupid, mm. and apart from him and doing his own spin on it again, and it's a very different feel to something like um, Henry Steele's Pantheon. It's uh, I'm really struggling to articulate this, but there's sort of a license giving to the given to the characters of knowing that they are mythic and existing within a mythic story. A bit like the noir, the protagonist in something film noir who never quite looks to the camera and says, I'm a film noir detective, but gets to enjoy inhabiting the idiom yeah. in a semi-self-ironizing way. And Gaiman and later Carey's Lucifer very much does this kind of engagement with... So, Gaiman and Carey's Lucifer, his superpower is mythic literacy, right? He's, he, yeah, this is, this is the thing, certainly from the bits that I've read, is that he is fully engaged with the mythic symbolism of primarily himself then sort of the Christian pantheon and everything around him. Willing to borrow at, from everywhere. Yeah. And at a distant last actual life as it exists around him. He knows people are there but he's he's not cruel so much as he is dismissive. Mm. Um, they are not his they're not his wheel park essentially. Yeah. Wheelhouse. And he's willing to borrow their... So the, the denouement of the first story is... Grim. Grim, and is, is sort of taking... Is using someone fairly grotesquely, being quite dismissive of their feelings because the story is solved by its internal logic. The neat concluded little loop of mythic logic that is, oh, right, and the human point of view protagonist then kind of sort of learned a moral lesson, the sort of... The trick ending, almost, that he seems completely happy with and is completely dismissive of her not being. It's kind of that total disinterest in being the great modern novel. Yes. Um, so I'm quite fond of that, putting a modern sensibility into a mythic narrative structure that knows it's mythic. That's, that's something I, I rather like. Pantheon does it crass and is kind of going at the fourth wall with a lump hammer. Yes, but I love that um, because, I mean, as I said earlier, I've been dissatisfied reading something where 
people have tried to put a modern seeming narrative logic on top of myth and in pantheon people say variants of this stuff has to happen sometimes because it's mythology and that's how it Whoops, works. We're mythic, kind of. Yeah, yeah. we you know, you know, we need we need for this to happen because mm-hmm. people needed to explain something and they they derive meaning yeah. from us. Therefore, this is going to happen. And that, that's kind of my feeling: is either embrace it, let it give you license to do a different type of storytelling, or just do something else. Don't try and get too clever with it. Is kind of I feel so. Again, three very different types of thing. The the Thor and the Lucifer version of use the storytelling license, the Wictive version of only engage with it when you have to, and the yeah, the Pantheon thing of spunk jokes. Can we talk momentarily about how good Pantheon is? I think we should talk for about three or four hours about how good Pantheon is. It's just absolutely glorious. Um, so new from new from Nobrow, uh, from Hamish Steele, who I believe mm-hmm. is an animator who's done some webcomics. I read some of his um, Dead Endia, which is good fun um, and um, really really good uh, representation just mm. in general mm. um, and he does he also does a podcast about sort of um, queer and MB voices in in, in sort, sort of, of pop fiction culture, pop culture in general yeah. um, it's a seems sort of, lovely on Twitter it got kickstarted a couple of years ago and now there's a no brow edition full color shiny edition out a mere twelve ninety nine. It's beautiful. Uh, it is beautiful. Standard low, no brow print stock. Mm, yeah. Sort of, sort of hieroglyphy looking, flat, yeah. but but very animated but, and. Oh, with that payoff. Yeah. The genuinely unsettling perspective payoff. Yeah, that is that is brilliant because it almost looks like one of those sort of three D, three uh, D plane video games with sprites where everything's just a little bit uncanny and it's playing so visually stylistically it's sort of playing with that pop culture idea of Egyptian art of very flat and planar mm. but introduces a little bit of shading a little bit of it, it so that it's not it's sort of semi-textured and semi-perspective it's quite bright coloured it's quite garish the characters have quite a strong visual idiom and then can I, can I spoil the the Horus thing which which particular Horus thing your other eye oh yeah that's glorious Yes. And then, towards the end, Horus, who's been presented almost flat on almost entirely, occasionally a slight tilt of the head to show that he's real, or, you know, his giant pecs get some shading. He's not completely flat. Um, gets a spear through the eye, and then there's some sort of... and doesn't notice. Yeah. And like, Horus, your eye, what? Because we can only see one side of his face. No, y- your other eye. My other eye? Oh, wait. And then his head turns, and it suddenly slides into kind of full shaded perspective. Yeah. And this He like, doesn't know it's fucked until he's actually facing the reader. This is like six jokes at once. I mean, I count at least three, for, for real. There's the perspective thing. There's him not getting it. I, th- th- there's the uncanny squickiness as this character turns and shouldn't have that many dimensions because he's not been presented like that. Just as a piece of knowing design, it's one of the best... Well, you sort of described the whole book as almost a string of three-panel gags. Yeah, it's sort of... It's There's a lot of pages where it's sort of beat, beat, gag, beat, beat, gag throughout, which is great at maintaining pace. The gag is normally either someone yelling, set you cock, or accidentally eating someone else's jizz. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in the source material. There is. There's a fucking wonderful bit about the boat race. Mm. That's just ridiculous. 
and there's a bit there's a wonderful bit about the beginning with a massive fake out where it looks like it's going to be austere and sedate and then just this tiny little bit of text just just leading off the page where you realize exactly what you're in for and it's it's great i don't think i've laughed out loud quite so much a book in a very long time. I properly shat myself laughing at this. I took so many pictures of it. There's just things like, you, stop mopping up that evil cum. And uh, <laughs> just horror shouting, it's cheers, cheers from your own cock end. <laughs> and no, I wasn't only laughing at the knob jokes, but I was laughing hard at the knob jokes. It's just, it's just wonderful. I think uh, it's only April. Might well, well be May by the time this goes out, realistically, won't it? But, um, probably my book of the year unless something genuinely spectacular comes along i'm interested to see spill zone but yeah but i'm also just i mean it's just really really good without sort of leaning into this is educational it is really good at explaining the difference between myth and linear story and why things work the way they do and sometimes yeah that is to camera we are mythological creatures, we are constructed from your own imagination, you need us to do this, to give you instructions to do this and that. But it negotiates that really well. Um, There's one character towards the end, I think it's um, it's Ibis, who is just, just, it just cuts to him because he has a part to play in the story, and he just goes, oh, what is this fresh nonsense? <laughs> And it, it humanizes these god figures who are both creating and trapped mm. in the absurd narrative logic of being yes. origin myths for their world. But it doesn't do it by giving them suddenly believable backstories. It does it by having them react to the absurdity, which is just, well, it just really works. Well, yeah, it's Fraser via Viz to Wikdiv's Fraser via Buffy. That's James Fraser, the Golden Bow, not the Seattle psychiatrist. Frazier. It's important, but we're a sibilant people, it's important to distinguish. Sometimes I forget which podcast I'm doing and it's just delighted hissing. While we're on the more sort of crass end of things... Have Tell you me ever... about your crass end. There's a comic I picked up a couple of years ago at Thought Bubble uh, called Swan Zeus. Uh, which, if you're familiar with the Greek myths at all, Zeus has a penchant for fucking everything. Uh, well, manifesting as something else. Yeah, sometimes he's a bull, sometimes he's a swan. And Swan Zeus, uh, by Gronk Comics or Claude Trollope Curzon, is a comic where Zeus, who has the head of a swan, the feet of a swan, is otherwise a heavily muscled shirtless man in short jean shorts. <laughs> <laughs> wanders around the mythological landscape trying to get laid and becomes a deadbeat dad and it is astonishingly astonishingly accurate featuring lines like hey baby, sup no baby, I'm a swan check out this fine neck so, wanna fuck? <laughs> very similar things in, in Pantheon especially when like Seth's trying to put the moves on Horus Pantheon shows the genitals, though. In this, um, Swan Zeus wanders around with his shorts undone, a permanent erection, and a black bar, which is drawn for comic effect, blocking okay. out his terrifying avian penis. All right, sorry, over to you. Do something sensible again. Oh, I was going to talk about the dong sound effect. Long-time listeners of this show will know that we appreciate a nonsensical sound effect. Grab. Tiny bite. 
Dong. Dong from Pantheon has joined uh, has has joined this fine tradition, which is um, it is Isis. Uh, Isis's sister. Which one's that? It's not Maat, is it? It's one of them. Conjuring a giant golden dong to attach to um, to Osiris, who, uh, as we are told in a previous panel, a fish kind of ate your dicky. It's that kind of book. And just shimmering in the air, this giant golden wang with the not sound effect sound effect dong. It's just, it's delightful. It's um, it's up there with, um, although far less pleasant than one of my other favourite non-sound effect sound effects, Tender. Also, how good is the payoff of that joke of the two of them watching the cat? Let's worship it. <laughs> Just the just the panel where it's getting closer and closer to Sekhmet as well, and then it's just the I'm so fucking cool. <laughs> this, this book is absolutely delightful. Hamish Steele's Pantheon. It's it's kooky and it's weird. It it's tremendous fun. I don't know. Here's the thing. I. No, your Norse myths, your Roman myths to an extent. Um, I've not read any source material for the Egyptian ones. Do they come down via the Greek? I couldn't tell you. I think there's some surviving original stuff, but it's it's a 6,000-year-long tradition. It gets really complicated about, around the reunification of the higher and lower kingdoms. Mm. It's hi- highly localised. And, you know, it's it's... It's scraps as much as any version of the mythology we've got is it scraps. However, we have them. A lot of it, a lot of this stuff has its roots in oral history, obviously, which means you're going to get a blend of the pure sacred, like the Eleusinian mysteries, with sort of the Homeric, your kind of tavern tales and entertainment. Basically, it, it's always <sighs> mythic canons have always had this kind of. I'm going to say it's superhero vibe. If you it, it, imagine, if you actually believed in superhero in, in Superman, but were writing the comics anyway, there's kind of there's that sort of angle to quite a lot of it. And I think some of the the super irreverent stuff, uh, Pantheon, bits of Sandman, bits bits of all sorts of things. Um, and yes, as we've mentioned, Joanne Harris's Gospel of Loki, which, which is a novel, not a comic, but is utterly delightful. It, are really quite, if you will, spiritually true to that feel of taking the material seriously but not. Yeah, I think it's sort of important to remember as well that um, absolute reverence is a later construction for most belief systems. Yeah, and a lot of uh, a lot of the comics that talk about the mythic in that way. They have that negotiation of do gods create man or does man create the gods? Do they exist as an example? Do they exist to reflect our our worse and better natures? Do they exist, are they embodied by... There's a lot of that negotiation around what exactly it means to have a humanised soap opera... To have a pantheon that's basically the X-Men, right? Like, it... Well, there's also that thing of a lot of um, interest in mythology. Obviously, it was well known before sort of the Victorian era 
Um, but a lot of the sort of academic work and anthropological work started around then. It wasn't necessarily brilliant, and a lot of it, I think, sort of viewed it through a very um, Victorian Protestant lens. I think there is that assumption that people would have worshipped in the same way, that they would have been sort of believing profoundly in their gods and deathly feared in, in, in the wider populace, whereas it doesn't really seem to be true. I find myself wondering if it's not easier to understand particularly um, ancient Greek, like sort of high Athenian, sort of 5th century Athens uh, religion, after Anglicanism than before, if you're kind of British in particular, but after, and not just Anglicanism, after like delightful, it's basically a hobby now, toothless secularization. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's quite probably a fair reading for a lot of it. Because there's the things like um, okay, so the, the really early stuff, the um, again the, the Eleusinian mysteries and the, the mystery cults that predate what we think of. At, I'm 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 a really shitty classicist, and I'm going to make some mistakes, and I'm sorry. The, the, the predate the stuff we think of as, as ancient Greek religion um, were a lot more fear and trembling, were a lot more ecstatic. But the Dionysiac stuff and the sort of the revels kind of come into High Athenian stuff, but it really blends in that entertainment. So the worship of the worship of Dionysus, some of the worship of Apollo, the the, the worship of the, a lot of the the public practice of Greek religion had quite a lot in common with drama, had quite a lot in common with festival. It's also um, heavily seasonal hmm. as well. So you do have feast days and sacrifice days, but they are seasonal. People would hmm. make much smaller tributes to household gods. Yeah, or and might well have taken the household gods a lot more seriously, actually, in many ways than some of the... I, I'm not sure about that, but it kind of feels like that might have been more immediate. I think certainly if you needed, like, well, for one example, for people who needed a really heavy dose of, of uh, eclecticism and mysticism in their lives, mystery cults like the cult of Mithras seem to have been, you know, that more uh, consuming, heavily practiced yeah. form of religion. Whereas your big ticket stuff feels to me, again, this is imp this is mashing up modern concepts and, and probably making huge historical mistakes. Sort of feels like it's okay. Everyone else has been doing it. If you if you take a sort of modern European, slightly shitty, undercommitted weddings and funerals Christianity, and then mash in I don't know nightclubs that are also run by priests, that sounds kind of more molesty than it should. That sounds pretty molesty. Yeah, I think that's kind of more the priest's fault than yours. So there's there's a lot of stuff that plays with pre-existing religious tropes both the ones that are if you like inactive or not really thought of as contemporary religions the Greco-Roman stuff your Norse stuff, your Egyptian stuff and kind of that sort of far enough back that it gets to play with it um, there's stuff that feels a bit more current or a bit weirder and then there's stuff that kind of creates a bunch of religious mythos almost out of not entirely out of whole cloth or partly out of full cloth. So um, we both read Black Monday Murders, which is doing things around the edges of a cult of mammon. Yes, I'm. 
So I don't think I've read as much of it as you yet, partly because I've been bouncing off the art. But Sorry, this is Black Monday Murders by Jonathan Hickman, art by Tom Coker? Uh, yep. Coker or Cocker? Cocker. One of the two. Uh, and this is, in a sort of slightly Max Gladstone-y way, is high finance as magic. Yes. Yeah. So money is power, but money is also literally power. And where the scales are tipped, a debt must be paid. You can, you know, and you can obviously, so it opens with the Wall Street crash, which because the senior bankers involved in it have made various magic magical deals, um, leads to them, you know, hemorrhaging blood and what have you. It, it's a world in which the intricate machineries of high finance are also machineries of magic, and it's not quite clear what drives what and which direction the power flows in, but golly, it's terrifying in places. It's also a murder mystery around that, so our kind of way into exploring the world, our not-quite-point-of-view character, but our point-of-view concept, I suppose, is using a murder investigation to drive a wedge into this closed world of mystic finance. It's got all that rich, soupy, Hickman stuff. Amazing back matter. I'll come to that. He's excellent at doing high concept that is complicated and structurally dense. Um, You get a lot of writers who will come up with something high concept like finance is actually magic, the god mammon. Uh, is at the centre of it, and they wouldn't construct anywhere near as complex or compelling a, a story from it. Yeah, um, I mean, Phonogram does music is magic, and it's it's good in different ways. But what it doesn't have is this tremendously immediate density. Phonogram taught me not to be an asshole about pop music, and fuck, Black how do I get one for films? Black Monday Murders uh, has not taught me not to be poor. The one for films is uh, probably filmish. So what you're you're saying here, Mr. Conrad, is that there are various comics I can use to teach you not to be an asshole. Sorry, I thought you meant for you. No, I'm not an asshole about films. I've never seen one. I'm not an asshole about films. I'll get you a comic. (sighs) No, no, I I, I like films. That's that's the difference. Hmm. Filmish by Edward Ross. Great comic about films. And film theory. And Black Monday Murders, you've got the plot hooks, you've got a bunch of stuff, you've got the shady heads of the the magical bank, and the various financial institutions are colleges of magic, and there's Eastern and Western traditions, and Gnostic traditions, and mystical traditions. There's loads of loads of rich mythic scaffolding, but that's sort of not where the meat is. The meat is in the little contextual machineries of how this world works, the artifacts in the margins. So interspersed with the comics, you've got pages from books or audio transcripts, textbooks about magical finance. Um, One of the more dramatic scenes in it is pulled away from and is rendered as heavily redacted police interview transcript, which is A, just a wonderful way of getting more bang for your buck with a fixed page count, uh, but B, a lovely sort of inversion of comics' abilities to do show-tell. Uh, and a way of making some quite potentially quite weird stuff happen off-screen, forcing you to consider what it might be, that the playing with perception, that sort of, again, I think Gillen described it as seeing the cage in, in one of his, his comments on it, but the ability to do stuff with the edges of the medium interests me. Uh, you know, 
way that its ability to do stuff with actual pictures doesn't so much. So this is this has been driving me nuts about it. I've been trying to read it for maybe two weeks now. No, I loved it, and you, with the reservation of what you're about to say, and you bounced straight off it because of it. It is just very heavily reliant on photo reference, and that's normally fine. Like, photo reference is fine. This feels traced over or flattened in Photoshop a lot of the time. Like, the very opening pages are very obviously texturized photos, and there's bits where the lighting, the art, the artist has gone over the lighting in the room at the time for one character and then drawn the rest of the room in the lighting that was required for the scene. And it's it just looks wrong. It looks obviously wrong and it's infuriating. I really wish I could enjoy it more because I'm I want to read that story, but I'm finding the artwork very, very difficult to process. I find that I found that interesting myself because I, I was reading it in a very different way. I was sort of racing through it to try and slot the world together in my head. I, I'm that kind of reader when I get something continuity heavy, I guess. Uh, stopping to enjoy the view on occasion, but mostly just desperately trying to, I guess, recompile its world from the scattered shards of it that it offers you in really interesting patterns. I just sort of think of it as like something like Sean Phillips obviously uses photo reference to a fair degree as well but it's lively it's animated it's not literal it's there to help it it feels like a tool not a crutch uh, whereas in this there are a lot of points where characters look like they're frozen in a ridiculous position or there are a couple of egregious examples of that there's some particularly bad ones like there's some lectures early on where you just have copy pasted audiences in different panels and it's just it's just very very obvious, and it, I every time I spotted something like this, I found it detracted from the experience. It may not for some people, and that's fine. If it doesn't, then I again I only, fine, I only registered that there was something a bit off. Yeah, no, I, I really struggled. I still haven't finished it. No, I mean I, I found it super exciting. It, the reason we pulled it into a podcast on gods is because it's so it creates a world of faith. It talks about Mammon a lot. We don't know if gods are definitely real in it, but it it's it creates a world of absolute and tangibly manifest faith in a way that a lot of comics featuring actually explicit manifest gods do not. Yes, and it also, like, the financial institutions are parallel to the church in that. Um, there is power, and there is power concentrated at the top, and there are a lot of there are a lot of sort of parallels drawn with it's perhaps slightly older versions of the church, though the and again I, something like the wicked and the divine negotiates this a little. What does it mean to be a god? What does it mean to interact with them? What what is what is godhood? Um, th- this does that for kind of belief and power a little. So in your sort of in your gods as super team comics sometimes they will get into a negotiation of what godhood and what power means so the Thor comics I read talked about to what extent gods are created by belief to what extent prayer affects them what it means to be or to become a god having not been one but plenty of people stand in the presence of actual physical Thor including your vikings on a longboat who rescue him on occasion like the the, the people who believe in him also have him as a drinking buddy 
and don't engage in that kind of, as, as you sort of highlighted, Victorian or even from medieval Christian sort of fear and trembling experience. Uh, the, high fi- the, the high financiers of Black Monday Murders who are not necessarily on speaking terms with Mammon but are very much accustomed to the presence of the numinous <laughs> yes. behave very differently. And I think that there's a couple of things going on there. One of them is when your god is your drinking buddy it's probably quite hard to be reverent but then you have these moments of breaking into reverence. One of the things that's highlighted in, in I think it's God Butcher, the God Butcher, the titular character who is a bloke, basically, an alien bloke, but a bloke who's got into the habit of killing gods because reasons that are revealed later, has this repeated refrain of, I will make your god bleed and show you he's nothing, versus bloody hell, they've seen you bleed and they also get drunk with you regularly and they still think you're amazing, what the hell is going on here? Um, it investigates quite deeply both well not quite it investigates somewhat what it means to be divine a bit but also perceptions of what it means to believe and some of the contradictions inherent in that from the safe distance of storytelling mythicism and Mick does that as well I mean you sort of called out the prose issue earlier which is in the form of a glossy fashion magazine. There's an interview and a fashion shoot along each side. It's like GQ or something like that. Mm. Um, fashion shoots beautifully drawn by Kevin Wada, who has been sort of doing fashionized versions of superheroes for mm. years now, and this feels like the absolute best use of his time, mm. <laughs> really. Um, not that McKelvey's not good at designing clothes and, and costume. That is one of his particular skills. Yeah, of course, yes. But it sits in that it sits in that same sort of place. You see in that a lot more other people negotiating the idea of divinity. Um, you see sort of the interviewers mm. and, and you see sort of people on the street negotiating with the idea of divinity and you've got and Laura Wilson's whole arc as well yeah you've got that very deliberate I think break between the sort of an early interview with Lucifer when the gods had just appeared and no one believes anything Mm. despite you know living memory this has happened before Mm. in this world Um, and Cassandra carrying that on after becoming Uda yes Um, and then you have much more sort of breathless lifestyle pieces but about divinity mm. um, and the presence of divinity still in this fanish way because they know what's going on the pantheon's lives are sort of bare on the table as they are in the living mythologies of the ancient Greeks or as they are with Thor and drinking buddies in Aaron's sort of early Thor but living god versus absent god or less tangible god or whatever you want to call it is, is that there's definitely some space in there um it's telling, for instance, how few humans there are in um, Steel's Pantheon. Yeah, so very, very few. It's about clearing the decks for them to an extent, fair enough. But Yes, but they are very rarely there. So Godshaper is another... So Godshaper's just started with one issue in. And the premise of Godshaper is that at some point in this world in the mid-50s, 1950s, physics broke. <laughs> Electricity and combustion ceased to work and everyone suddenly had a personal god. 
and similar to Black Monday murders, their the, the, this personal god is a manifestation of their own power. Um, it, it is very keenly tied into that. Um, and power is currency in the same way, um, although transferred by beads in this case, <laughs> um, which is a neat little uh, sort of a sleight of hand. And in this world you've got god shapers who are very, very rare. They do not have a god of their own and they're sort of treated as though they're um, out, they're outcasts and you get the sense that there is a, a sort of fear of them and it's really hard to tell whether that's the character's initial reaction or whether like it like they feel incomplete to people viewing them, um, soulless or anything like that, or whether they are just socially shunned and it's better not to be seen with them. It sort of dabbles with both, leaning towards the latter. Um, and the gods themselves are sort of like um, attendant spirits in sort of English folklore, or Pullman's demons. Mm. Um, they're mostly mute. Almost entirely mute. Oh, right. So I, I've not read this, and I'm actually that surprises me. Um, you don't see them talk a lot. They're just there, and their form is um, the form and their function can be changed by these shapers, um, who cannot receive payment because they do not have a god of their own. They can only receive payment in physical goods or mm. services rendered, rather than actual currency. Um, so it's interesting from. Um, from that regard, and uh, the art, the artist Jonas Goonface has done some fairly extraordinary work. Um, there's there's a couple of panels in particular that are just absolutely glorious. There's this one sort of tour de force where the main character is is at various points in an evening making his way through the bar, hoovering up drinks, talking to people, getting off with people, um, and it does this across a double page spread and sort of zigs back and forth throughout and through sort of very clever use of colour and, uh, and speech bubble placement guides the eye sort of in a snaking path across these two pages. Mm. It's really, really nice little bit of formalist um, design and the whole book looks lovely. Um, but it's only one issue in, and it's really hard to say what sort of commentary it's going to have around... Uh, I mean, we've got a lot of trust in in Mr. Sperrier, but... Uh. Yes. So I, I wanted to raise it because I think it's an interesting book that people should look at, but I, I think it's far too early to sort of draw anything from it as of yet. Now this is, but this is, this is one of your, your whole cloth deific mythoses, right? This is, yeah. It's not drawing on anything pre-extant. So not really, no, no. It's, um, I mean, Spurrier is good at high concept, right? Mm. Most of the stuff he does is pretty high concept, and so this has this has space to explore all sorts of things about what belief might mean in a world where, yeah, yeah. It also has, you know, it's yes. What does belief mean in in a world where everyone has their own god who they are intimately familiar with? Um, what does that do to society, which, as far as we know, was our society up till about 1957? Um, it's also got sort of this notion of 
this notion of being an outcast. Like it's got it's got a sort of Great Depression aesthetic, despite mm. sort of being twenty twenty five later twenty five years later than the Great Depression. Um, but it still has other ways of being an outcast. Like the main character is not only this uh, shaper who is shunned by everyone, um, which is you know it's a sort of shamanic tradition, right? You are for the village, but not of the village. Yeah. Um, but also, the main character is queer and a part of a growing counterculture. Um, oh, right. There's, there's a sort of counterculture that doesn't rely on their, their gods to make music. Um, mm. They they make music the traditional way, and there's this, this sort of proto-punk movement um, with a whole bunch of queerness and otherness thrown into it. It's interesting. This does sound good. I mean, this sounds super promising. There is a ton going on, and there's so much going on that it doesn't necessarily wrap up anything beyond the fact that the central character sort of can't help but try and fix things. But it feels like it's going to be a very long sort of rail-riding adventure with anti-heroes and queerness and, and weird gods, and I'm in it for the long haul. Those are all things I like. Mm. Seems like a bit of a recommendation. Yeah, I think so. Not quite as strong as the one as for Pantheon, but I don't know if they get a couple of really good jizz jokes in there, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a clear hypothesis from this, but the one thing I would say the, is that to me it feels like I enjoy stories about gods and divinity in comics more when they cleave close to or do interesting things around the original structures. I'd probably agree with that. So I wasn't able to track any down, but I did a bit of reading around. As, as just a weird example, counterexample here, Kirby's New Gods. The New Gods are very Shakespearean. Even down to the neckwear. But this is your, your classic, um, it's what, 60s? No, late 70s. Sorry, late 70s. It's when he was at DC Comics. He um, um, Basically, in order to get him away from Marvel, they gave him a certain amount of free reign, and then when they got him in, they stuck him working on a Jimmy Olsen comic. And he mutated that into the into New Gods. Into New Gods, yeah. And for me, this is, is a fairly classic example of comics notionally about gods being indistinguishable from a super team. I mean, not quite a super team, but... Uh, these are like giant cosmic twiddly rollicking adventures of weirdness they, they it's kind of there's a, there's a lot in common with Doctor Strange maybe of of a weird semi-external entity being sent to troubleshoot a strange metaphysical problem yeah but with bright garish colors and lots of nonsense as opposed to the sort of more dour, more knowing, Gaiman-esque mythical entity troubleshooting a strange a metaphysical problem. Yeah, um, I mean, there's there's a lot more punching and ray guns. Yeah, and it, it's of that era, and it's of that idiom, and, and there's a bit. It, it sort of feels a bit like your sort of silver surfery galactusy cosmic entity inflation Marvel comics. Yep. Uh, which is why I initially thought they were Marvel. I looked at the design and thought... Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's Kirby. pure Kirby, yeah. right? So, and there's there's a lot of stuff there that, that ties them together. Like, Kirby created Darkseid, and I'm pretty sure Marvel created Thanos about mm -hmm. a year later. 
Um, and I look at these things, and I'm not saying don't call them gods as they don't do blah. Goodness knows I'm not interested, interested in essentialism. But... It, this stuff, a, lo- a lot of the the entity inflation version of godhood doesn't seem to have massively much to say about the ideas of what a god might be as a cultural artifact. It, it, you know, we've already, idiomatically, we've, we've already got superheroes, we've already got big weird sci-fi, we've already got magic, we've already got so many of these structures. And I kind of think that to, to stick the god label on it and then to not play at all with the semantics, to not even wink a little, feels well, like a slight missed opportunity. The, well, one of the reasons that it's interesting is that it's of that time when comics were sort of, they'd come out of the, the sort of Marvel boom of the 60s and they were getting into the how the hell do we stay relevant part of the mm. 70s where they were sort of trying for realism and they were trying for sort of social relevance this is the sort of green arrow mm. green lantern my ward is a junkie era of comics <laughs> and um new gods yeah some of it some of it sort of took place on earth and interacted with characters and you know sometimes jimmy olsen's there that's a thing that happens unfortunately but a lot of the time it was, you know, just gods fighting this sort of cosmic uh, battle with sort of heavily, heavily sort of spiritualist and capitalistic tones. Um, and it, again, cleaves closer to a conventional mythology. It's a pantheon having a massive scrap, even though they're kind of aliens from two different planets. They're still... From all, from all that form. I've just complained about that. It is doing the same thing as a lot of adventurist pantheon stories do. I, I, my terminology is all over the shop there, but you know what I mean. The kind of your saga pantheons, your your Norse gods, your your Roman gods, your Egyptian gods. Uh, here are some stories about strange, powerful entities doing strange things that, in weird gnomic ways, explain the world. It is doing some of the same stuff. I just find it interesting that it doesn't take the opportunity to do some of the, I guess, postmodern version of the same stuff. I don't think Kirby had any interest in that, though. Mm. I think he very much wanted to create his own pantheon of gods, and this was how he was going to do it. They've got delightful names. There's some there's some absolutely great ones. I mean, Big Barda and Mr. Miracle are my favourite of those characters. Mr. Miracle is, is sometimes a god and sometimes human, who is largely built on based on Jim Steranko um, and he can escape from anything he's he's a super escape artist but it's taken in a very metaphorical approach now so that's what this gives you of course once you don't lash yourself to the sides of superheroes with defined based on physics albeit in a mad way abilities the idea of maybe having a superpower that is that operates allegorically or metaphorically or mythically. That's something that this does give you. And you sort of don't see that a lot, not least because it's kind of really hard to write around. You end up with an even worse version of the Superman problem. And, yeah, Grant Grant Morrison had another crack at Mr. Miracle in his... um, uh, in his Seven Soldiers run, which was very, very much this sort of thing. Like you couldn't say this is this is holy gods, mm. but it was its own mythology. Um, the character lends itself to that. 
Um, but also, some of it's just very sweet. The Mr. Miracle and Big Barda relationship is actually one of the kind of better, rare sort of husband and wife teams in comics. Also, the design. Yeah. Such great design. Like, one of them, Black Racer, is just a guy on skis. Cosmic skis, because they'd already done Cosmic Surfboard. You might as well get to the other adventure sports eventually. Wow, yeah. Um, skis about the place in a cape, giant yellow cape. Why wouldn't you? Um, I'd be afraid that someone would see me. Not if you were, you know. Also, I would trip and God. die on the cape. Is the cape long enough to get under the skis? Probably, yeah. Oh, that's that's not great design. I love that. In the sort of God, he'd be able to. In the promo shots of them, they're all sort of doing their godly things or standing there, and Mister Miracle is still chained to a rocket that's going to explode. Like everyone else just gets to stand around looking concerned, and Mister Miracle is still trying to escape from some sort of stupid death trap. It's wonderful. Okay, wrap up. Yeah, I, it seems like there's, there's there's a lot of ways of doing this thing. And a lot of ways of having your cake and eating it in terms of, I guess, theological questions. One thing we've conspicuously not talked about is depictions of gods or, if you like, live or current majority religions. So we haven't, for instance, gone and read one of those fuck-awful manga Bibles. Um, despite threats. Despite threats. Um, but also we haven't... We've, we've looked at things where gods are protagonists or characters, primarily. So we haven't looked at something like uh, Will Eisner's A Contract with God, where mm. it's a sort of modern-day Job tale. And we've probably missed it. God goodness knows we, we, we've, mi we've missed plenty of things here. <laughs> Feel free to chip in with the comics. We've only got an hour, so please tell us what we missed. Wrong, but it feels like a lot of the the comics that do engage with with gods as, as protagonists or as entities, uh, speaking roles, if you like, uh, a lot don't have much to say about religious experience. It's it's conspicuously absent, with the exception of. There are some odd bits in Thor, or bits of this. What is the idea of godhoods as a myth, as a myth-building scaffolding? That whole that, that whole trope that gets done and again and again and again. And does belief give them power? Do they create the world? Are they created by the world? That stuff is super current. This, that stuff's all over the place. But the idea of gods as personalities and their participation in other people's religious experience. There isn't that much that seems to explore that. Wicked is is doing it a bit, uh, but through this tilted lens of fandom, which I guess is because that makes it more tractable. Yes, and it's um, I think to their credit that fandom and religious worship have been. I think they've been treated well. It's never felt glib. Yeah, they've been elided. I think that's partly down to the fact that they have respect for musical fandom yeah. anyway. Those two things have been elided without unkindness. It's... I... 
the worship in the wicked and divine is both glorious and problematic in the same way that it is in the world. Gosh, that's kind of a religion than I normally am. Also, it's got a jizz joke in the first issue. And I think that's actually the soul of it, isn't it? Like, all of the genuinely good comics engagements with what it means to be a god are fundamentally just flimsy pretexts for jizz jokes. Yeah, just fluids in general, lots of fluids. If you take one thing away from this, it's that it is impossible to treat a comic about God seriously if there aren't like a couple of pints of bodily fluids per page. Talking of unsettling religious experiences. Yes. We have another show. Another show. It's called We Will Fix You. On which we will fix you. And he does this voice for like 20% of it and it's basically fine, but he is going to do that voice. Oh, but I am. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Have a listen. It's pretty good. It's an advice podcast. We give you advice and I do that. Uh, and if you want us to help you, uh, email questions to wewillfixyoushow at gmail.com and we will sort you right the fuck out. Ta-ta. Ta-ta.